0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 43, The Paradox.
1: Welcome to The Paradox with your attending Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room.
0: Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format where you can learn about what physicians face through expert analysis. And today's expert is Dr. Madeline Feldman, who's a rheumatologist in private practice in New Orleans. She's an expert with pharmacy benefit managers, which is a topic we touched on very briefly in episode five for those of you who are longtime listeners. Basically, pharmacy benefit managers are the middlemen or the ones who write contracts and are supposed to provide discounted savings for large purchasers of pharmaceuticals, whether that's a hospital system or pharmaceuticals or insurers, primarily insurers at this point. And thanks to people like Dr. Feldman, Dr. Mass, and many other physicians and some patient advocates, there's now a discussion about the roles of pharmacy benefit managers, their unique position within the US healthcare system, and basically how they're ripping off patients and insurance companies. In fact, now you'll notice that there's mergers between the insurance companies and the pharmacy benefit managers, because the insurance companies were on to the game, and we'll discuss exactly how they are doing this in the episode. It's a little bit confusing, there'll also be a show notes page at paradox.com slash So if anything becomes a little bit hard to understand, there'll be a link there to Doctor Feldman's article that she wrote, which explains in detail and goes through stepwise fashion exactly how the pharmacy benefit managers make their money and become some of the largest lobbyists in Congress. You can always of course support the show at Patreon.com slash The Paradox, where all patron supporters will help support the show, both the promotion and the production. Finally, if you enjoy the show, please be sure you subscribe. It costs nothing. And please share with your friends and family and colleagues and anyone else you think who might be interested in healthcare policy from the point of view of physicians. Again, the show's purpose is to help physicians better understand the problems we face and for patients to understand exactly what problems we face and the things that ultimately harm or cause difficulties for you getting the care that you want and the sort of care that we as physicians want to deliver to you. But without further ado, Dr. Madeline Feldman in a discussion on pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs. Enjoy. Welcome, folks. I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Madeline Feldman. She's a rheumatologist, and yes, she's the third rheumatologist I've had in like about four or five episodes. <laughs> this was not planned, but They're just coming out of the woodwork recently. Uh, She's in private practice and been practicing for over 25 years with the Rheumatology Group in New Orleans, Louisiana. She's the president of the Coalition of State Rheumatology Organizations, the chair of the Alliance for State Biologic Medicine, and founder and past president of the Rheumatology Alliance of Louisiana. She's a clinical assistant professor of medicine at Tulane University School of Medicine and the president of the Tulane Medical Alumni Association, and is passionate about advocacy and lectures extensively to patients, physicians, regulators, and legislators, Aren't they all kind of the same sometimes? Sometimes. On a uh, a local and national level regarding access to care for patients and the importance of maintaining the doctor-patient relationship, which we talk about all the time on this show. Dr. Feldman has received the Distinguished Service Award for Tulane Medical School and was named one of the top women in New Orleans by City Business in 2017. She's also a former radio talk show host and has been on the top doctor's list in New Orleans for over 15 years. Dr. Feldman, thank you so much for joining me, and thank you for taking time to make this finally work.
2: Oh, well, thank you for having me. I know um,
0: time is of the essence for, uh, for not just you and I, but but for everyone. For everyone, and, and, uh, and we had this originally scheduled, and I had to put on a different episode, and it was because I took a fall on my bathroom floor from having the flu and syncope, and so anyway... I've recovered and wow. it's funny that you sent me a message saying drink plenty of flus. I thought, well, that would have been useful advice about two days ago <laughs> when I, I tried, ran myself ragged. Ugh, if only anyway. it had
2: been an acute neurologic, I mean, excuse me, rheumatologic problem that I may have been able to help something as simple right. as gout.
0: Had <laughs> I suddenly had a lock jar or something and fall <laughs> some some sort of problem in my knee. Ugh, but anyway, fortunately, I'm repaired and I'm fixed and we're together today. And so, uh, why don't we start just with a little background about you? I mean, I read the, the bio, but let's talk about your training, obviously, in Tulane, your practice practicing private practice in rheum- rheumatology. Why don't you just start about there and then kind of how delve into sort of how you ended up in advocacy?
2: Well, um, I, it's actually, I've actually been in practice probably closer to 30 years. And um, after i have been in practice, let's see, probably around 12 years, my youngest daughter was 10 at the time. And uh, she was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, and um, you know, it, it, e- even though I sort of watched her over the summer and and realized by the end of the summer what she had, when the pediatric rheumatologist, you know, <laughs> looked at me and said, "Madeline, you know, she has juvenile rheumatoid arthritis," I was still, you know, in shock. Um, yeah. You know, and and. And maybe sort of subliminally that has sort of um, encouraged me to go into advocacy, but it wasn't until maybe about five years after that, um, that I, I actually became very active in, in advocacy. Everything sort of changed here in New Orleans in 2005. That was the year that Katrina hit and I lost both of my offices and um, I had just started the rheumatology Alliance of Louisiana. And not only were my offices washed away, but the, Accountant who had helped me put together the nonprofit, but his office had been washed away. So when we all came back from um, Houston, where we had evacuated to, um, I was sort of sort of left hanging, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it probably sort of bolstered me to become a little bit more active in advocacy. Um, I sort of got back together with a couple other rheumatologists and put my practice back together, and started seeing that you know, maybe one or two people can do some really important things. Um, small groups of people in, in New Orleans, you know, helped bring the city back. So right. it, it sort of encouraged me. And then even though my daughter was getting ready to go off to college and was seemingly in a in a um, sort of a remission at that time, I think probably her state probably encouraged me as well. I first, yeah. I, I first became interested when... Um, a few years before that, when rheumatology was starting to get some biologics, the things that we could actually do for our patients. Um, not that methotrexate wasn't a boon for rheumatoid arthritis, but when the biologics came along, it, we really could make a difference. And when the IVs started happening in our offices, and it looked as though there may be legislation or reimbursement issues that would sort of cut that access, it was when um, I think rheumatologists around the country started realizing we have to stand up for ourselves or no one else will stand up for us. So I put back together the Rheumatology Alliance of Louisiana with the help of Coalition of State Rheumatology Organizations, CSRO. There are two national groups representing rheumatologists, and, and, and we actually are making nice together these days because... Pretty much we're all members of both. So the American College of Rheumatology along with the coalition of state rheumatology organizations have both really sort of taken advocacy for rheumatology I think to the next level. So I actually joined the board of the CSRO after Katrina when they came to me and said what can we do to help the Louisiana rheumatologists. And I said, well, one of the things that we could use is, you know, to be able to advertise for our patients to let them know where we are. And
0: so. As you move, yeah.
2: Because right. the, the patients were scattered and, and some of them had come back to Louisiana, but rheumatologists were in different places. So they actually gave us a grant to put ads in newspapers to let our patients know where we were. So that told me that this organization, you know, really had the patient at heart. Um, it was it was an organization that really wanted to keep the doctor-patient relationship together, and that sort of started my my journey with CSRO. And over that time, uh, issues would come along from various state um, rheumatology organizations to our board, and we'd learn about various issues that happened. You know, whether it was with insurance claims or you know various patient access difficulties. And also at the same time I was on the insurance committee for the American College of Rheumatology. And I think those two things together um, really sort of made me see how health insurance, which was actually supposed to help people get better health care, was often impeding and throwing roadblocks um, between my patient and access to the care that they wanted. And sort of that is where I sort of became aware of this and started looking into various aspects, which led me to pharmacy benefit managers and their role right. in access to drugs. So, yeah,
0: it, it makes total sense, right? Because you were looking at that, you were advocating on the insurance end, and then you were worried, about, of course, with medicines, that's primarily what rheumatologists do, right? And, and so you, and you could see the problems with access and... And just to, just to tell people, I guess, because we oftentimes throw the, around the term and as an anesthesiologist, I'll be the first to admit when people, when physicians would talk about biologics, I was like, what are they talking about? Because we don't use that in, in anesthesia, but these are just medications that have biological actions, right? Or they're, sure, or yeah. I but, should say but... they're made, made by, they're made, they're not made like in a Pharmacy plant, right? I mean, is that exactly. They're not yeah. what
2: we call small molecules. You can't go into a chemistry lab and make them. They're actually produced by living cells, and so that's why they're called biologics. And they work on certain parts of the immune system, and they're um, not just used in rheumatology. You know, they're used in neurology, okay. cancer, dermatology, mm-hmm. gastroenterology. Um, you know, in you know changing the quality of life and um and saving lives as well but they're very expensive um that's that's the first thing that people will notice about biologics is that they're very expensive
0: right and uh it's interesting too your story about your daughter because i was my father was a physician and unless you were bleeding you really never were hurt (laughs) so you know (laughs) that's right so and our kids would test that, and I'm sure anyone whose whose parents were nurses or their, you know, nurses' kids, same thing, right? Like if you can walk in and you're, you, you know, know, you're probably okay, and it's you'll <laughs> it's be fine.
2: Gonna be, Don't worry, you'll be fine. Yeah,
0: you'll be just rub some dirt <laughs> in it. It's it's worse than like having a football coach, I think, for parents sometimes. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Uh, so we're going to talk about pharmacy benefit managers because, and so just as a little bit of background, when I, if you go back to episode five, when I talked to Mary Mass, we discussed. Briefly, ph- pharmacy benefit managers, but we spoke mostly about group purchasing organizations. But essentially, these are, I guess, your classic middlemen. Uh, and then why don't you, if you could just go with history, why PMs exist? Because I think even when you look back at group purchasing organizations, where now you're saying, well, they, I don't know they serve a function that's helpful anymore because we don't have small little one-off hospitals. Everywhere. Now we have these large hospital systems that can get group purchasing uh, uh, benefits without having sure. to have without having to have a co-op, you know. Uh, and I imagine that was the same thing for pharmacy benefit manager. We had all these little tiny pharmacies all over a town or the, a, a state or something like that who'd need to pull together to get discounted rates for pharmaceuticals. So why don't you just go into what pharmacy benefit managers, their, sure. their history, if you could, and then sort of how they came to Maybe like today or to mid-2000s or something. Well, you know, like,
2: like most people, when I first heard the, the term pharmacy benefit manager, I just I literally let it, let it go over my head. I, I didn't care about it. I didn't want to know what a PBM was. Um, it didn't affect me or my patients or so I thought. So I mm-hmm. sort of put that on the wayside. Um, to give a little bit of a history to them, I, I think they probably started more with Medicaid. Um, so if you think of health insurance, you think of the medical part, which is the part that pays for doctor visits and surgeries and and you know um, big tests and things like that. And then there's the pharmacy part. And as more and more drugs came onto the market, the major health insurances, Decided it was it, they really didn't want to get into handling how to decide to get the drugs to patients, how to charge them. So they hired companies to sort of be the middleman, um, and these were pharmaceutical pharmacy benefit managers, and they would basically set up a network. Um, they would you know put pharmacies in the network so the patients would then know where they would go pick up their drugs. They would actually set up the formulary and that construction of the formulary and if you don't know what a formulary is that is the list of drugs that your insurance company will pay for and we know that there are different tiers there's the ones that maybe you just pay a copay for if it's the little more or so we thought expensive drug you pay a little higher copay and then when you get to these really expensive or what we call specialty drugs um, you, you generally pay a coinsurance a percentage of the list price of the drug so essentially, the big health insurance companies, whether it's the, the Blue Cross, Anthem, Cigna's, Aetna's of the world, would contract with a pharmacy uh, benefit manager, of which there were three that were the that controlled about 75 to 80 percent of all of us here in the United States: Express Scripts, CVS Caremark, and OptumRX. So they would contract with them and sort of. Put it in their hands. You make up the formulary. You decide what the co is. Um, you pick out the um, the, uh, the pharmacies that our our patients can get their medications. And we'll pay you a fee. We'll pay you back for the drugs. But you handle adjudicating all the claims. And you know, and and I think they probably performed a, a valuable service um, in adjudicating the claims and handling all of that. But. You know, as the years went by, they became highly consolidated, meaning, you know, there were lots of, of, of um, mergers, and then we got to just three, handled everything. And then if you think about it, they're in the middle of essentially deciding what, what drugs our patients can get, when they can get them, if you've heard of something called step therapy, that's the order in which they will pay for drugs. Um, where they can get them and how much they'll pay for them. So PBMs have become extremely powerful as sort of the, the end all be all of our patients access to medications. And in my mind, (laughs) um, and in others, um, I think they've, they've sort of utilized this power, um, in order to make more money. I mean, if we're really going to be honest about the whole thing and, um, and actually, uh, Dr. Ellen McKnight sort of coined this phrase, but I think she, she, she hits the nail on the head. Um, I really don't begrudge private enterprise making a profit. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. But there is a difference between profiting and profiteering. And I think if, if I explain a little bit how the PBMs work, you'll see that perhaps they are stepping over that line into profiteering and inter- interfering with the doctor-patient relationship along the way.
0: Right, and so when I talked to Dr. Lopatin Patton uh, from Pennsylvania, he he also talked about the steps in and then how it affected how he could how he could manage patients. Because basically, you do one drug, and then if that fails, you do another. And he said that was there's some rationale to that. I mean, there's you know there's a stepwise pattern. He said the problem would happen is that the formulas would change from year to year, and suddenly you may have a patient who's stable on a certain medication that's been on it for five years, and suddenly now that's a tier three drug or something, and now you have to go back to put them on something else that you either, that doesn't work. And for, I know, speaking personally, and I've mentioned this a couple times, show my, my mother has rheumatoid arthritis, and you'll be on a medication that's working for you, and it sometimes not easy finding one, a combination, or sort of, you know, a, yeah, a combination, I guess, of different medic- medications that control your symptoms. Absolutely. And so to suddenly change that is, uh, and you have to figure out the dosing and the timing. I mean, it can suddenly send debilitate someone because they can't, you know, walk and do things for a while. Absolutely. So, I mean, so the, no problem.
2: Those those tools are called utilization management tools. Whether it's step therapy or what we call non medical switching, this the changing of a formulary, either you know, for over here. Or sometimes, even after six months, you sign up for a, a particular insurance plan, and, and halfway through the year, they change the formulary. So those behaviors and, and policies in and of themselves are fairly egregious. And, and as you say, sometimes it can take, I think, on the average of about 18 months to get a rheumatoid arthritis patient stable. And then if six months la- later, you know, the, the PBM decides to change its formulary to a different drug that's paid for. Um, that you know the disease activity goes out, you know it starts rising again. Um, you know we lose productivity. Um, you know how do you put the value on? You know um, someone walking their daughter down the, the the aisle when they get married. You can't. You really mm-hmm. can't put a price on that. And those are the kind of things that happen to patients that you know maybe other people don't notice but are very impactful um, in their life. But I think. What causes even more outrage when I give my lectures is the reasoning behind the step right. therapy and the non-medical switching. It is not to save our healthcare system money. And that gets back to the rebate system. And it's even it's more than just rebates. I, I'd like to call it the price concession system, because what manufacturers offer to PBMs in order to quote unquote, buy their way onto the formulary is more than just a formulary rebate. And I, I can take a, a few minutes to sort of explain how it works, even though they want you to believe that it's so complex, we can't understand this. And that's why we can't fix it. It's not as complex as they would like you to believe.
0: Yeah, well, it never is, right? I mean, ultimately, it's a it's a business decision. And it's and so why don't you go into your, your equation? Okay. I think that's probably the easiest way. So sure. I think there are four parts. So why don't you go into that?
2: <laughs> well, so they're, they're looking to, to make a formulary. And um, normally when you have bidding on something, you would think that competition would bring the price down. And this is just sort of a little segue into my rebate formulary uh, formula for the formulary. Um, but there's two ways that competition can affect a price. Um, if the bidding is for the lowest bid, for example, if you're building a house or building you know, a complex, all things being equal, contractors come in, and the more the bid, they try to undercut each other, and the price gets lower. And all things being equal, et cetera, you know, the quality, et cetera, you're going to pick the lowest, what's, what's going to cost you the least, if you trust sure. everyone. On the other Man. hand, if you're selling your house, the more people bidding on your house, the, the, the more competition there is, the higher the price goes. So competition in that case raises the price. So keep that idea about if you're bidding for the lowest something, it brings down the price. But if you're bidding for the highest something, it raises the price, more competition. So here we have a pharmacy benefit manager and we've got biologics made, nine different biologics all being bid on to be um, number one on the formulary. Now, they're not bidding to see who can give the lowest price bid. They are bidding to see who can give the highest price concession. And part of that price concession is the rebate. And what that is, if a drug costs $10,000 a month and they put in a 50% rebate, That means every time the pharmacy benefit manager fills the prescription, they get $5,000 back from the manufacturer. They pay $10,000 for the drug, they get $5,000 back. So essentially they pay only $5,000. So that is a 50% rebate. Now, if you've got nine different groups vying to be the number one on the formulary, how do you make your rebate bid higher? Now the rebate is based on the list price times the discount you're promising, times how many prescriptions you can fill. So if you can fill 10 prescriptions for this manufacturer and make 5000 on each one, that's $50,000 you make. However, if you fill 10 prescriptions for a different one with the same rebate, you're going to make more money. So the more scripts or the bigger the market share, that also improves your rebate. But if you look at the things that the manufacturers have control over in that formulary, in that formula, list price and percent discount, the list price is the one that they have the most control over. So if you want to raise your rebate total, the easiest thing to raise is the list price. You following me on that?
0: Yeah, and I think this is something that when I talk to Keith Smith, when he talks about health insurance and and why insurance doesn't always lower the cost of care for like a hospital prices is the same reason Uh, because they're okay. The insurance companies are okay with the price going up because when they get the discount, they get more of that. They get more, they can charge more for premiums. And so it's sort of the same thing, right? As, As you have a higher, as if your list price goes up, your rebate goes up. And so the money that goes back to the, the person making the purchasing, which is the pharmacy benefit managers, their profits, or their whatever profits, you want to call it, their profits go, go up, go up, obviously. And, and, and so it's it's a way lowering their costs in some ways, exactly. So, I mean,
2: it, and everyone right. in the drug distribution chain, whether it's the GPOs and vendors, whether it's the manufacturers, whether it's the pharmacy benefit managers, um, every, as the list price goes up, everyone makes more money. So there is absolutely no incentive for having a lower list price drug on your formulary, and we sort of learned about this you know maybe three or four years ago and there was a a drug coming out onto the market um, that was going to be new a new drug in that class for rheumatoid arthritis a new class of drug new mechanism of action how it was treating rheumatoid arthritis and the manufacturer came to us csro and and was telling us about the drug and we said price it right it's not a biologic price it right and looks like the studies are good, and and you'll probably have a lot of rheumatologists using it. Well, darned if they didn't come out and price it the same as a biologic. And we couldn't understand why they priced it so high. Drug reps would come into the office and say, but you don't understand. They had to price it high. And we'd say, why? And they go, well, we don't know. But all we know is that we can't give our drug to to, say, for example, Express Grips. They don't want it. They, it has to be priced high in order to get on the formulary. So we at CSRO brought in some ex-PPM and insurance executives to sort of explain to us how this, how this worked. And why is it that an, that an entity that says it's saving, you know, billions of dollars for the healthcare system, why would they be picking a drug that's more expensive? And when we found out that the more expensive the drug is, The more money the pbm could keep it all started to make some sense um well what happened maybe a couple of years ago anthem which is a very large um, insurance company found out that express grips was getting all of these rebates and they sued express grips um because they were not getting the uh the rebates passed back to them and eventually they fired express grips because Express was keeping all of these rebates. That was around the time that everyone started learning about rebates. We had been lecturing about it, but everyone started realizing there's these huge rebates that PBMs are making in constructing these formularies. Insurance companies wanted to start getting them back. So PBMs started to pass some of the rebates back. But what they did was they would reclassify the rebate as a fee, and then they could (laughs) keep it. So I have started sort of not using the word rebate and using the word price concession because, you know, it's very difficult. These are, these are all um, proprietary contracts between the PBM and the manufacturer, so no one really knows what the numbers are. But there was one lawsuit between a manufacturer and a PBM where they sort of countersued each other. Both were claiming they didn't get market share or they didn't get enough money. So it opened it up to attorneys. And in this particular case, we were able to see that that formulary rebate was dwarfed by the administration fees and the price protection fees. So that little bitty rebate that now all the PBMs are saying they're passing back to the insurance companies was just a small part of the price concession. Now, all of this becomes moot because over the last year, as you may know, um, well, OptumRX was already owned by an insurance company, United Healthcare, but Cigna bought Express Grips and CVS Caremark, the PBM, actually bought Aetna. So now, the 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 black box of where all this money is going has just become bigger. So we have the three biggest PBMs all now incorporated into our owning insurance companies. So I don't know if we'll ever actually get at where all of that money is going.
0: Right. So and so this is an important thing and I think we touched this also in episode 5, but the some of the largest lobbyists to Congress are these pharmacy benefit managers. I think they're of the of the healthcare organizations on the top 10. I think they're three of the top five or something i think of as far as money given oh, during absolutely both the election c- cycle and non-election cycle to members of congress
2: fortune 500 um now granted that's based on revenues but they're all in the fortune 25 express groups is probably the lowest of the revenues of the three and they are 25 on the fortune 500 the um the highest Uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers, Johnson & Johnson, and they pretty much make everything, Um, they're close to 35. So in terms of revenues, the the PBMs are bringing money in um, hand over fist. Um, Now you may have heard, um, you know, probably this week is the last time you can make comments, the Department of Health and Human Services, they put out rules that sort of govern Medicare. And one of the proposed rules, so they put out a proposed rule, they let everybody comment on it, and then they make the rule based on those comments. You may agree with the final rule, you may disagree with the final rule, but then the final rule comes out. And there is um, the comment um, period is ending, I believe, tomorrow, either today or tomorrow, on a proposed rule that um, Health and Human Services came out with that essentially for Medicare Part D, would take the rebates that the manufacturers pay to the PBM and give them to the Medicare beneficiary. Now, it is a little bit more complicated than that because if you're, if you're like I am, you're, you think to yourself, well, these don't sound like rebates. These sound like kickbacks. These sound like, mm-hmm. you know, sort of payola that the manufacturers pay to the PBMs to get a spot on the formulary. Well, evidently the government must have viewed it that way as well because there is something called the anti-kickback statute. And back in the early 90s, PBMs got safe harbor from that statute to allow them to take these rebates and not have them counted as, as kickbacks. So basically what this proposed rule does is it takes away that safe harbor so that all of the rebates that manufacturers pay PBMs will now be considered kickbacks and subject to law enforcement. So this proposed rule creates a safe harbor for the rebate to go to the patient and another safe harbor for a flat fee, not based on the list price, to go to the PBM. And if that rule gets passed or comes out as a rule and is not overturned by significant um, litigation, that will be the first break in what we call the rebate wall and may be the beginning of the end of the rebate system. PBMs are gonna fight it tooth and nail, and they're gonna figure out another way to get the money, but there is hope. I'd like to at least give you there is a light perhaps at the end of the tunnel if the tunnel doesn't
0: collapse before we get to the end. Battle against Mordor is always <laughs> yes, it's always going. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I guess to try and to try and sum it up. Because uh, it's a super complicated I mean and that's by in, by intent. I mean the more layers you have the more complicated you make it The more likely it is to be a successful enterprise My, my, my enterprise. favorite word for them right. is
2: obfuscation and that's they are the yeah. masters of obfuscation
0: Right, so basically you have you have a in, you have these Middlemen these the pharmacy benefit managers They they benefit by getting these large rebates. So the higher the list price so if a manufacturer they're they're incentivized to have higher costs to their medications, whether they like it or not, they sort of are in sort of in order to give larger rebates and to pay more to these companies. Now you might ask yourself, well, why not just have a low price to start with? It would be the same for the pharmacy benefit manager, but it's not because the pharmacy benefit manager is not paying directly for these. They're getting their revenue. They're getting paid to buy these drugs by an insurance company, right. By a third payer, and that's the key, right? I mean, if this was a if this was a Discount that came from patients. If all patients are just p- paying for their own medication on their own, well, you could have a discount that's, a, you know, nine hundred ninety-nine percent, or you could have zero percent as long as it costs a person a dollar. They don't care how you know. Absolutely. I give you a thousand, you give me nine hundred ninety-nine back. But in this case, you give them a thousand for your for your drug as a patient, and you get you know five hundred dollars goes back to the to the uh, the pers- initial person that only cost them five hundred dollars. So the pharmacy benefit manager makes the money because it's a third party payer system essentially. Where they they are getting paid by another entity, and then as you pointed out, the insurance companies wisened up to this, probably because it was it became more egregious over time. I right. imagine any sort exactly of, uh, right. You sort of it's, it's a confusing process, and then insurance companies, which I will point this out, and <clears throat> I don't mean to be this to be disparaging to people who are in the insurance business, uh, but this probably goes for about any business. They're not like geniuses, right? <clears throat> and I, and I don't. And I don't mean there aren't geniuses within the insurance company or any field, but just in general, these are just kind of regular people who are just running a business and things can change and you may not recognize changes that occur until like, wait, it's, you know, hey, we're getting ripped off, right? And it might take you a lot longer than you might think. So it's sort of like when people say, well, the experts in Washington, and I mean, I've seen the experts in Washington, they're usually 23 year old uh, <laughs> poli sci grads. Exactly right. And I don't think they're like experts and understand, you know, any industry really well, except, you know, how to write a term paper. So- uh so with these so the important thing to remember of course is that these pharmacy benefit managers they had this plan going and then it sort of didn't work it the insurance company said wait a minute they started suing them and the easiest way to get around this is to say well we'll just be that third party we'll just buy them
2: we'll just buy, <laughs> we'll just buy the
0: insurance company right now of course that also leads to some problems if you're the pharmacy benefit, benefit manager because now you're the one paying yourself and so the amount that you can get is really dependent now on jacking up your premiums, deductibles, and those sorts of things that you're extracting from the patients or employers who are paying for the insurance. And so it's probably a less efficient way <laughs> of stealing money, right? Well uh, well now <laughs> that
2: the insurance company oh for so for example, Cygnus counting on express Scripts continuing to be a money making machine, which is sort of why they bought them. But instead right. of, you know, worrying if how much of the price concession Express Grips is keeping from them. Now they own Express Grips, so they will get all of the money. You know, one of the things that they're that that one of the arguments that they're making is that it's the employer's fault. The employer wants to have the lowest premium. um, so we need to make as much money in order to give them a lower premium. Um, well when they looked at when employers do get some of the rebate money passed back to them, less than Somewhere between 10 and 15% of the time do they even use that money to lower premiums for their employees. So the ultimate user of the drug, which is the patient, really never benefits from any of these price concessions. And if you think about it, the consequences of the rebate system is step therapy and non-medical switching. So I think the most egregious part of this is not who's making the money, but the fact that... Someone is making money, and the result is an infringement on the doctor patient relationship. They talk about how important step therapy is and non medical switching to save money for the healthcare system. Well, it's not even saving money for the healthcare system, it's putting money in their bank account. So here we have step therapy, which controls what drugs and when the patient can take it. They have non medical switching, which switches stable patients onto drugs that perhaps they've already used before, it excludes drugs from formularies that may be very helpful for certain chronically ill patients, not in the name of saving money for the healthcare system. It's in the name of profiteering. So not only is it uh, terrible because it's the money's going to these people, but the consequences of this system are what are really is, is hurtful to the patients. Now they can't afford the drug because, ironically, their coinsurance is not based on the rebated price. Their coinsurance is pay- based on a list price, which is sometimes 90% over what the PBM paid for the drug. So it's one... Horrifying example in my mind after another. What the rebate system has done to our healthcare system—it hasn't saved it mo- its money, and it has um, resulted in um, patients not getting the drugs they they need, not being able to afford the drugs that they need, and actually stifling innovation. If if I don't know if your listeners all know what a biosimilar is. My patients like to think of them as generic biologics. They're not generic because they're not small molecule, but they do offer a lower price for the biologics. But if you think about it, list price times discount times market share is what gets you onto the formulary. Well, biosimilars have a lower list price, so that's one ding against you, and they have no market share because they're brand new to the market. So here we've rushed through these so-called generic biologics through the FDA in order to bring cost savings to the U.S. for biologics, and they can't even get on the formulary because they cost
0: too little. I mean, that <laughs> is
2: outrageous.
0: Yeah. Well, right. And I think ultimately that the important thing to remember really is that patients are being harmed by this. Absolutely. I think that is, and, and you'd say, well, not that it'd be okay, but it's like you'd at least hope that... If you're going to be at harm, harmed, you at least shouldn't be paying as much. But you, right, you pay more right, to be harmed, right? right? Exactly. right. I and mean, that's like the double whammy. I mean, ultimately, it, we've talked in circles around this many times in this show, but it's been it, the the third party pay system is, is a is a ludicrous way of of delivering any sort of product, especially one as important as healthcare. And yet, because it causes so many distortions, and yet this is what we have in this country. I mean, I. Uh, I feel like if we if we had an honest transaction between patients and physicians and pharmacies and whatever, I think it'd be like any other part of the market. I mean, you can't, you can't imagine going to a grocery store and having this sort of thing like, well, your avocado's, you know, $50 today. Right. Uh, you know, people wouldn't tolerate that sort of thing, but they don't, patients don't see it. No. Because, they're, you know, in many ways, I mean, they are paying the premiums, but it's like four times removed. You know, it's like your fourth cousin. You really don't really know them at all, and you don't have any personal you don't really have any skin in the game. You just know that it kind of sucks. Right. And you're just trying to figure out and, what's going on. And
2: it's unfortunate because sometimes the, the skin in the game that's required of patients is too much skin and they can't afford the skin. So they just oh, yeah. they just stop taking the drug. You know, we've all heard the horror stories of, of diabetics rationing their insulin or not taking their insulin and, and, and dying because of it. So, you know, there's there's only so much skin patients can put into the game. You know, they talk about transparency, and I I really do think transparency is something that would be very helpful across the board. PBM's claim transparency softens competition and raises prices. But I would hope that (laughs) from my example earlier, softening competition in the type of bidding that takes place actually will lower prices. and they, and they go to state legislators and they go to congress and they tell them we are the saviors of you know drug pricing and we extract these huge discounts from the manufacturers and if you take away our ability to do that prices will go up i would submit prices will come down
0: yeah well i and i, I the problem i have with the transparency crusade not that i think it's a bad thing is i i worry that you're you're asking people who are masters of obfuscation as you say to be transparent and you can almost kill someone with transparency in some ways and just show so many details that it becomes meaningless and or you just don't show the exact the important the data that you think is important to be to be seen you know and so i worry about all these laws and that just it won't it won't have the effect that we have hoped i think the fact that you have um the safe harbor laws perhaps being going away and i mean those are the things that i think can I think that's the, I think you're right
2: I think that's the the, the the first good start the problem is as in you know and it gets back to politics we are such yeah. a you know um, the part you know it's such a political football because it came out of an administration that you know you either I don't want to say love them or hate them but you know if you're on the other side no matter what they say they're gonna be against it and so immediately unfortunately um, you know representative uh speaker pelosi said this is a terrible rule we don't want this rule it just gives uh, manufacturers an excuse to raise their prices she was parroting what the pbm said about it but it's because it came out of an administration um, that say half the country doesn't like um so it it that's what makes this even more difficult. Is because this is a good rule, regardless of where it came from. It really needs to be. This, if anything's a bipartisan issue, um, this would be a rule that um, both sides of the aisle should get behind. And and I would encourage anyone on either side of the aisle, if you know, if to encourage your senator and congressman to support this um, hopefully rule that comes out that takes away the safe harbor from rebates, puts it in the hands of Medicare beneficiaries. And if the premiums do go up, they will be so small in comparison to the amount of money our seniors will save when they go to the drugstore to pick up their drugs, particularly those with chronic
0: illnesses. Do you think pharmacy benefit managers serve any useful role right now? I, I do. I, I think they do. Okay. I, I think the
2: the... the the drug distribution system has become um, so complex that, but they could be just a flat fee service entity. You pay them a fee to put together a formulary based on the lowest list price. You pay them a flat fee, an administration fee, but don't make the you know incentivize. Um, higher list prices so so that this, um, you know, this entity in the middle makes more money. I'll give you an example. It's probably about two years ago, I spoke to the um, human resources department at Caterpillar. You know, Caterpillar is a, a nationwide company and they were using I believe it was Express Scripts as their pharmacy benefit manager for all of their employees. They were self-insured and had um, a PBM putting together mm-hmm. their formularies and they were noticing their drug spend was going higher and higher and higher. Well, they took, um, Express Grips out of that position as a um, sort of as the one negotiating with the manufacturers and just paid them a, paid them a flat fee to adjudicate the claims. Now it was a couple of years ago that as the as a member of the board of CSRO we spoke to the HR department um, at Caterpillar. But after doing that, it had been 12 years before, not the the Caterpillar employees did not have their health insurance premiums raised by one penny in 12 years. Now I'm not saying it's because they kicked express grips out of doing the negotiation, but it's kind of coincidental that they started saving a lot more money on their drug spend when they didn't have a middleman that was taking in all of the, the, the discounts on the drugs. So I think that, so I think that there's a place for transparent um, fee based only pharmacy
0: benefit managers. Yeah, it's interesting to me. I, I was going to make the same comment. It, you would think, and I, f- I find this, uh, th- it's occurring as well with direct primary care, and when you can start cutting costs by 90%, you suddenly can get disruptive innovation that that can't be stopped by the larger entities, whether that's uh, providing direct care to patients through direct primary care. I would imagine there's there's definitely a large opportunity for some people to adjudicate at a small fee for, for all these companies are looking for ways to control their healthcare costs and and their drug costs. I I'm surprised. Is is it well,
2: they're out there. There, there are there are fee-based transparent pbms unfortunately they're the small guys and you know the next group that you have to take on i'm going to end up with a horse's head in my bed if i don't stop but the next group <laughs> that you have to take on believe it or not i think are the brokers the insurance and pbm brokers because oh, a sure. company goes to them to try to find out well what's the best pharmacy benefit manager for my size my type of business that i do and they're all directed to the big three no one is directed to these fee-based transparent um, pharmacy benefit managers but they are out there they just don't right. so get they're not, the
0: business they're not prevented by through regulatory uh, actions say you have to be you know one of these three or they have, no, they have excessive no, regulations that make it impossible to compete for which is oftentimes the strategy by large corporations is to change the rules basically in the ground through legislative action or regulatory action.
2: They, they pay a hefty commission to these brokers. I'll just leave it. Oh, at I'm that.
0: sure. Right. <laughs> oh, Hey, I mean, it's like, it's been like that insurance companies for all, for, well, quite some time, I think in all sorts of different types of insurance. Um, so you've, you would do lots of advocacy, both at the state level and the national level. Yes. How, I mean, obviously this, God bless you. First of all, <laughs> I think I, my my no thing work. is, I'm
2: waiting for my cynicism to take over my passion. And when that happens, I'm going to stop. Luckily, my passion is still a little bit ahead of the cynicism. But I tell you, every time I go to Washington, D.C., boy, that cynicism creeps up.
0: Well, my my friend, Dr. Meg Edison, has always said, well, you know, in the end, the good guys always win. So that's, <laughs> that is her attitude, <laughs> no matter like what that. the <laughs> odds are. And I think, you know, I think that's I will go with it. Um, what do you think? Obviously, this is potential real change. What do you think the overall environment has been with, with the with legislators? I mean, you aren't running, walking in with fifty million dollars in your in your campaign fund, uh, handing out to people. So your voice is muted in that sense within Washington significantly. How are you? How are you being effective? Are you? Are you do you think you're being effective? I, mean, I, I, I think we you are. Um,
2: you know, two years ago or even three years ago, no one was talking about PBMs. You know, I don't necessarily think it's just because of, you know, my lectures or CSRO. I will say I will say that uh, Coalition of State Rheumatology organizations joined with the American College of Rheumatology and we formed a nonprofit called ATAP. Alliance for Transparent and Affordable Prescriptions, and it was through ATAP. You know, even though I'm president of CSRO, um, I think it was because I was a, a theater major. I'm the one they keep asking to give these talks. Um, I, it, ATAP, ha, it, its sole mission was to educate, you know, patient advocacy groups, patients, legislators, regulators, um, other physicians on the behaviors of PBMs that affect access to the right drug at the right time for the right price. And I think our group going around to and educating um, these groups as well as uh, down in DC, at least we've, we've rung a bell, you know, um, that they started listening and they started hearing about it. And I think that's why um, this month um, the finance committee is going to have um, five of the top, PBM um, executives in front of them, and they are going to grill them in the same way that they grilled the the pharmaceutical manufacturers. In essence, ask them why do we even need you. Um, so yeah. that's going to be interesting to see, and that would not have happened two years ago. Um, so we'll see how much um, savoir faire they have in front of the um, the senators in terms of convincing them that they're present. Um, you know, business plan—the way they do business—is the best way to um, set up formularies for patients.
0: Well, I think it's great that a theater major is out there advocating this sort of thing. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine Julius Caesar, the patient, being I say, at two PBM as he's being stabbed <laughs> in the back. Uh, I,
2: I'm I'm a bit dramatic behind the podium. In fact, I don't stand behind the podium, but you know that's
0: well. That's, that's you, you got to be that way, right? <laughs> I mean, this is. I, I wouldn't say anyone would turn on a show. whoa pharmacy benefit managers, I tune in, right? And no one's going to want to listen to that. So you have to make it interesting because, and it's super complicated too. It's not. It's a, there are many multi. This many multipliers are like it's like not a. It's sort of like racketeering, right? You got to f- go through all the how the money's been laundered. That's right. Um, I mean, then there's
2: the then we we can't even get into this, but there's the entire um, uh, generic manufacturer cartel that now is being oh, yes. looked at, you know. And boy, they did things like you know writing you know prices on napkins and passing them around the table because they knew they were being watched. I mean, this system has a lot of cleaning up to do.
0: Right, and and I mean, I would just only say that I think a lot of this is is because of the. Uh, because of a lot of the rules and regulations that are set in place and that make it hard to survive as a small uh, a small business, and so it, to be an, to be a disruptive innovator is really difficult because of the because the rules and regulations are written by the people who are in power, and that's been the case in this country for a long a long time. It's nothing new. It's just I think people just forget that regulations generally are um, that while well, they're written by the people who are currently the one the leaders in and who can afford the the costs of maintaining those regulations, right? It's a way to prevent new competitors generally from coming to the market. Because anytime new regulations are written, they're almost always universally written by the people who are um, being regulated uh, because they're the only ones who understand it. Because again, 23-year-old poli-sci major is not going to know how to write write insurance regulations, and so they're going to rely on the industry itself to write those. But I
2: mean, look at, look at uh, the anti-kickback statute. They actually went and gave... I guess, a free pass to take kickbacks to very large corporations. I mean, so here you you had a rule, and then you created another rule to allow a certain um, population to break the rule. I mean, really, does yeah. that make sense?
0: Well, I mean, it, it only makes sense in that it's just the typical regulatory capture <laughs> process. I mean, I guess you know, people call it crony capitalism or crapitalism. I mean, it's sort of like that. The 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 really cool thing about it though that I think uh, is that when it gets so egregious that it, it all comes tumbling down, no matter how many rules you write and no matter how many times you try and capture the market and prevent people from getting involved, when you have a superior product at a superior price, eventually you just it it just you get you can tear it down. No matter how many laws they write and you you know whether it's a taxi cab and they've got you know the market well, then Uber comes in and suddenly there's just nothing they can do about it or or Airbnb or whatever. So anyway. Before we go into like deep theses into uh, economics. <laughs> well,
2: I'll, I'll tell uh, you, my last thing is why don't we just have formularies that are based on the efficacy, the safety, and the lowest list price, and I'll be happy.
0: Yeah. I, I'd be happy if patients went and, and just and bought their own med- medicines because I feel like that'd be a much much simpler system than relying on your insurance company to pay for it or whatever. I, I think, you know, the third-party payer system just makes things, it distorts things. And it makes it really difficult to to have people understand scarcity and the importance of drugs and things like that. So I agree. Uh, um, so I I'm in a, on my show notes page at theparadox.com, dot uh, com. There'll be the your article which is very good that goes over what we talked about and has the I think even has the formula the formula that we talked about the rebate formula called Prescription Drugs and the Effect of on Access to Biosimilars in the U.S. Again, biosimilars is not talking about similar organisms. It's talking <laughs> about actual medications that are, like you said, sort of generics for these these medications that are used that are large, um, non-like aspirin. Um, and where else is a good place for people to keep track of what you're doing and to maybe find out more of how to get involved? Because I will say before you answer that, that it is absolutely true that one or two people can make a tremendous difference. I've seen that many countless times with just some friends who decide that they're just fed up with something and they go to the state house and they get legislation passed because they get, they convince a bunch of people and, and before you know it, things actually happen. So don't always just give up. And again, good guys always win. So where can they follow you?
2: Um, they can follow me on Twitter at uh, Maddie, Maddie room. And um Maddie Room No, New Orleans, and uh, LinkedIn, uh, Madeline Feldman. And, um, you know, who knows? Maybe I might be popping up in your in your state one day.
0: Yeah. Hey, we'll take you in Michigan anytime. <laughs> uh, it's, I always recommend coming here in the summer, though. <laughs> it's just now starting to get a little bit nicer. We I, don't have leaves in our trees yet, but.
2: Yeah, I go down to Miami in the summer and end up in Kohler, Wisconsin in the winter. I think it kind of needs to, to be vice versa, as they say.
0: You, you must go just based on how much the hotel rooms cost. <laughs> <It> turns, <laughs> Florida's really cheap in the summer, and so is well, Cooler, Wisconsin in the winter. I think you nailed it. Well, it's been a pleasure, a Delight. Thank you so much for being on, and um, we'll hope to hear from more from you in the future, and I hope you have the best success uh, in your advocacy. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash The Paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.
0: if I feel like we've gone offline sure. or, or off, the, I just bring it back. It's and, not a big deal. And, and so. I guess
2: we're not going to solve the entire drug pro, uh, pricing problem tonight.
0: <laughs> I entirely expect us to solve the drug problem tonight. So we should do that within the first 15 oh, okay. minutes. Uh, and then, and then after sort of that, I don't know, we we'll just kind rest. <laughs> of, yeah, maybe then we can solve world peace and yeah. hunger and things like that. Move so, on. you know, the, just the small ones. All right. So we'll get going here.